I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. What haunts MIT as the Jeffrey Epstein scandal sinks in is that the predatory sexual license he gave himself, his fanboy futurism, his fascination with famous scientists, and their fascination with his money was all of a piece. Last year's faculty chairman at MIT makes the point bluntly with her own anthropological twist. If you live in a culture, as Susan Silby put the question to her colleagues in a stormy faculty meeting this week, if you live in a culture where the saying is, move fast and break things, where disruptive entrepreneurship becomes the purpose of education, you really can't be surprised that a registered sex offender is celebrated for his philanthropy, imagination, and creativity. MIT's president, Raphael Reif, his own job on the line, said he was humbled by a cascade of misjudgments that have brought most particularly women on his campus to a last straw moment. So it's going to be open season for rethinking a quagmire here. We will hear a lot of MIT's inside anguish this hour. We begin with a faraway view from a prolific scholar we admire at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Siva Varianathan keeps his eye on the changing interplay of technology and democracy in the world. I asked him, what's at stake in these troubles at MIT? We've seen science funding over the last 50 years increasingly move to the private sector, right? To move to the, to the domain of millionaires and billionaires, mostly billionaires, who have taken an interest in how science in the United States will develop and flower. And this is distorting, if not corrupting, science. We are basically not only pandering to the whims of billionaires and moving our research toward the issues and concerns that most tickle you know, the small set of men, but we are also um, choosing winners or letting these billionaires choose winners, right? And more often than not, these billionaires are choosing not only research agendas, but specific labs and scientists to fund. So as a result, this move to land the big money donor to support scientific research is, is really not helping the overall progress of human knowledge. Siva, the MIT scandal began with, shall we say, pedophile money. It's gone on to questions of good money and bad, interested or disinterested money, but then also anonymous money. Meantime, we can't help noticing that MIT Harvard at the Broad Institute in Biomedicine is in head-to-head -head competition for patents with Berkeley, and that the patent lawyers surround both institutions. It's like a transcontinental war over huge profits in the future. How should this work be financed at best? And should the universities be converted into enormous profit centers that they're going to have to fight for? Several decades ago, the U.S. Congress passed a law called the Bayh-Dole Act. Yes that was intended to help fund university research by facilitating this notion of bringing patents to market. And that has had a distorting, if not corrupting, effect on American universities as well. It has shifted our emphasis and our resources towards short-term gains 
and uh, products brought to market, which should be the goal of pharmaceutical companies and should be the goal of engineering companies, but should not necessarily be the goal of MIT and Harvard and the University of Virginia and UCLA and Berkeley and the University of Arizona. But why not? Because we should be playing the role of disinterested seekers of knowledge and disinterested creators of techniques. And that's why, ideally, university research would be funded as it mostly was in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s on federal money that is distributed and decided by councils of scientists, right? It should be merit-based, idea-based, technique-based, and not necessarily concerned with either the whims of the markets or the whims of billionaires. The mistake was to shift the burden to students by assuming that higher education is a private good and not a public good, that higher education is about the student and the value to the student and not the value to the state and to society. Now, the same applies to scientific research. The idea became that scientific research should be about what's good for the lab, the institution, the scientist, and the companies they partner with, instead of the idea that scientific research should be good for the country and for humanity. That was a huge mistake. Do you know the difference between good advances in computational technology and bad ones? Yes. I, I mean, I like to think that I can judge what might be a positive advance in computational technology versus a, a negative one. But what it really comes down to is the approach one takes. This is what I call techno-fundamentalism, this notion that there is only one way to approach human problems, and that is by inventing another thing, another layer of things, right? So think about this. Like, you know, we allowed Facebook and Google to create these global systems of information distribution. It wasn't hard for bad actors to learn to hijack both of these systems and cause all sorts of problems and significantly undermine democracy. And these companies have responded by saying, we will create a whole level of artificial intelligence, of machine learning that will solve these problems that we created. Well, that's just bad thinking, right? You know, they're very good at creating artificial intelligence, so they are doing the thing that they know how to do, but they're not asking the deep questions, the historical questions, the anthropological questions, the ethical questions. They're not even asking the legal questions half the time. They're not pursuing these very complex human problems as complex human problems. That's what I mean by techno-fundamentalism, searching for the quick and easy answer because it seems doable, and that usually means inventing another machine. Some fundamental issues are being raised here about who owns the science, where it's going. Put this moment of confusion, and it's deep at MIT, into some sort of historical context. We're seeing a continuation of a 200-plus-year American tradition of viewing technology as our civic religion. You know, America has always been a place with a can-do attitude. You know, every once in a while, we should try putting on a can't-do attitude, right? Yeah. The story we tell about ourselves in the 19th century is that inventors like Whitney and Edison are able to transform daily life by making everything more efficient, by giving us more work hours, by giving us more uh, forms of entertainment. But look, we saw it in, in Mark Twain's novel, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, right, which came out in the 1890s. Mark Twain saw that America had a certain ideology, or a certain civic religion of technology, right? So his character, Hank Morgan, a Connecticut Yankee, very much of the Whitney and Edison mold, ends up 
transported back to King Arthur's court. And he immediately goes about first surviving and then thriving based on his ability to invent things and predict things. So he's able to predict eclipses and he's able to invent all sorts of cool new tools, including weapons of war. And fairly soon he becomes something close to a dictator and uh, he's assuming power and his great enemies, his great rivals for power are the storytellers, the humanists, the religious people, right? The clerics and the wizards. And the final showdown battle is between the Connecticut Yankee, the empiricist, the inventor, the technologist, and the storytellers, the mythologists, the wizards. And ultimately, there's tremendous loss of life at the end of the book, right? It's a terrible ending. And the storytellers end up prevailing they end up winning. Uh, and it's really unclear what what our takeaway is supposed to be from that. But I think Twain wanted Americans to feel discomforted by the fact that we trust too much in our ability to master the universe through our inventions. And we might want to pay a little bit more attention to the stories we tell about ourselves and the ways that we interpret our world around us. When we get to see this in perspective, Siva, what connections will we make between the Epsteins, the funders? Let's not forget, you know, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, who's in on this, the Koch brothers. What are the links in the big picture that we're missing? I see Je Jeffrey Epstein as a man in search of control and something more, as in search of mastery, right? So the, so the areas of science and research he was, he was gravitating to are about mastery, mastery of our environment, mastery of our bodies, mastery of our minds, mastery of, of evolution, and his extracurricular activities, right? His, his personal life was all about mastery over human bodies, mastery over women mm. in terms of science. The people he was interested, these are people who are trying to master the human condition. They are doing so out of curiosity, perhaps even innocence, not necessarily arrogance, but his investment in it was to be part of the team, to mm. be part of the effort to control the human condition. Jeffrey Epstein delivered a wake-up call around Harvard and MIT. What does the rest of the world care about these financing issues and the control issues? Every major research university in the United States either is or should be worried about the potential moral turpitude of its donors. Uh, you know, Epstein may be an extreme case, but he's also an easy case, right? It was easy or it should have been easy for Harvard and MIT to have excluded Epstein from any conversation and basically walled him off from either campus. The fact that nobody there had the moral spine to do it uh, says some very bad things about both institutions. Uh, now, but there are plenty of institutions around the United States, institutions with far less money to start with that are hustling for big donations from morally suspect people. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's important, it's imperative at this moment that this story not stop at the river, at the Charles River, and that the story go into every lab and every fundraiser's office and that we start coming together to discuss best practices to discuss ways to screen donors and investigate donors better, 
that we discuss methods and and protocols for dealing with crises and conflicts and scandals that might pop up after we've taken donations, all of which is going to happen in the next few months or years, I guarantee you, across the country. Sipa Vadinathan, fascinating. And we're just well begun on seeing the implications of the Jeffrey Epstein case. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. The latest of Siva Barianathan's many books is Anti-Social Media, about the runaway powers of Facebook and Google. Coming up, a sample of the raw feeling in the MIT faculty. This is open source. Sari Haslanger is professor of philosophy at MIT, widely published on a range from metaphysics to feminist theory. She was wide open with us this week about feeling morally rattled in the MIT maelstrom. Her integrity compromised, options limited by bad old rules of the road. It feels very compromising. So I'm someone who has a very rich set of values, as we all do. Um, And part of the core goal of my life is to live according to my values. And that's very hard to do in a situation where on a daily basis you're asked to compromise, on a daily basis you're asked to live within the system or, or make accommodations to a system. And I think that there's a kind of acceptance of the structural problems because mm. people feel powerless. They feel as though there's nothing they can do. And, and so even people who are very upset are unlikely to speak up or to say anything, either because they think it won't do any good or because they feel very vulnerable. So there's anxiety, there's rage, there's fear, there's a sense of powerlessness. MIT says pretty much out loud that they can turn money, bad money, into good use. But they don't seem to be interrogating this issue of what is good, much less discussing it in public. That is a philosopher's question. What's the good being accomplished? I think that's a a huge question, and it's a question that philosophers have been worrying about not only in the Western tradition but in all traditions for centuries. I'm not sure it has a definite answer. My approach to this is is more like the medical do-no-harm, that you start Mm. with thinking about what is harmful, what is unjust, what is inappropriate. And where there's more consensus on that than there is on what is good. So prostituting young women and girls, bad, right? And that's a not pretty, okay. That's not okay. And you can start there and say that's not okay. So rounding up the Uyghurs in China and putting them in concentration camps, not okay. That's not. Let's good. explain that. MIT's investment money seems to have been going into one of the huge companies that is surveilling China and most particularly the Uyghurs. Yes, that's right. And, 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 and there's also a company that is involved in this surveillance technology that has donated considerable amounts of money to MIT and various AI projects. Mm. And so that's MIT researchers taking the money and contributing to research that is going to sort of improve the mm. kind of AI surveillance, which is not just going to be in China. I mean, there's surveillance in prisons, there's surveillance all over the place. There is an atmosphere that on one hand I love, 
but is very risky, which is move fast and break it. We don't look backwards. We look forwards. Build the better mousetrap. Move forward. But at the same time, if you move forward too fast and if you kind of participate in the kind of bad boy culture, which was kind of what was going on in the media lab, then you can break stuff that you shouldn't go near, right? You can break stuff. You can make big mistakes. I have an idea. I want to do good in the world. How am I going to fund it? Well, the current system says you're going to have to find corporate money. You're going to have to find money from from iffy sources for many, many people. And this is the way business is done. And so that, I think, is asking people to compromise. Thank you, Sally Haslinger, in the MIT Philosophy Department. Susan Silby served a two-year term as MIT's faculty chairman through last spring. She is an anthropologist who has applied her craft to matters at hand, like how engineers are educated at four different schools and how technologists watch each other and govern themselves. Susan Silby, that was your line about the culture and a climate on a university campus that could almost invite Jeffrey Epstein in. That's a heavy statement. And it makes, I think, most men just shudder at the some underlying truth there. What is it about bully boy, bad boy culture that men accept? Because at root, it's about winning. And it's about me. It's mm. a world of competition. Little boys start young. You can watch little girls and watch little boys. They don't play the same. There may be something genetic there, but we are smart enough to control our behavior. The genes don't have to control. That's what education, training is all about. Mm. We can manage what we're given. And little boys like to fight. They like to win one against the other so that when um, you talked just a few minutes ago with Siva about mastery – that this is these billionaires control. and these and control it's about i'm better than you it's not mastery in the abstract it's me in control mm. and it's a very individual notion it's not a collective notion mm. notice what all these people are funding they're funding genetic determinism they're funding evolutionary psychology they believe mm. at root that they are better than others, and therefore they should be the masters. Look at the talk. These are geniuses. You take a person mm. like Jeffrey Epstein, who nobody seems to know where he got his money. What act of genius... We still don't know. That amazes me, but go yeah, ahead. What act of genius and invention did he make, but he's spoken about as creative, inventive, and intellectual? I venture to say, since I've observed enough of these people, that they say bizarre things. And the saying the bizarre without a logical, sustained argument with evidence hmm. sparks people's attention. Now, what could he mean? But and it is that attraction, that frisson, oh, I got to get in here. I got to get in here and engage with this that that is at root of the the these games that men play. Okay, but let me ask. At MIT, where he somehow found his way in, what is the scientific version of that bad boy behavior? 
uh, domination. The, the, and the scientific word is what Sally just said. I have a good idea. No, I mean, I mean among, among high scientists. Among oh, you mean the way they speak to each other? Oh, it's jokes. It's humor. Humor. I, I've listened for my entire life to the jokes that scientists tell about each other. It's always the same joke. Some brilliant scientist, and they tell it about Wigner or they tell it by somebody else, it's always a joke about how foolish and stupid somebody was. There are no variations in these jokes. <laughs> That's... It's they tell a joke where somebody did or said something foolish, and that's the joke. Take it to the culture of labs, most of them with men's names on the door. What's going on there? Well, and I, and including with the female assistants, and I don't mean sexual, but I mean rank and uh, oh. respect. Well, I I have been studying for the last. Uh, 15, 17 years, the ways in which hazards in laboratories are managed and contained. And one of my early students on this work wrote a whole paper about how the women in the lab are regarded as the source of danger, not the men. What kind of danger? Well, she's going to spill something. She isn't wearing her lab coat. Um, Better watch when she's near the machine, that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I want you to play the anthropologist through this, this hour, the, the, the way, the unwritten rules by which this game is played. I also want to introduce Seth Manukin, an esteemed and prolific science writer who teaches journalism at MIT, and he practices it on a wide range of subjects in hardcover books and magazines like The New Yorker. What's going on here on this on the bad boy behavior? But then I also want to get to your own view of the, of, of the scandal. Yeah, I I think one really interesting thing that has become clear uh, as the details of the Epstein case have come out is that there is a much wider issue, not just at MIT, um, but at institutions of higher learning across the country and and probably all institutions. Um, And that's a culture of um, bullying that is making a whole class of people feel uncomfortable um, and unsafe. One of the things that was very revealing about the faculty meeting that we had yesterday at MIT, a very raw um, and emotional and, I thought, uh, productive faculty meeting, um, was how many people who have these very privileged positions, tenured positions at one of the most prestigious universities in the country, feel bullied. um, And how that's... I'm surprised to hear that from Sally Haslinger, too. They feel disempowered. Can I... Yeah, please, please. So part of it is raw numbers. Mm -hmm. When there are very few women, and mostly men, and the men are of a kind, they think the same way. They want metrics for everything. They want numbers. They don't respect people who don't do what they do. They regard Seth and me as soft. They're hard. We're soft. soft And And I mentioned this yesterday. That the issue is, and when you press them and you get them in an open conversation, you say, you say to them, well, wh- why do you think sociology and history is soft? Why don't you put that in your curriculum? Mm. Well, it's really too hard. I said, oh, really? Too Be- difficult? Or- that's what they, if you press them, they'll tell you it's too complicated. 
<laughs> it's too complicated. There aren't, and I've heard students say this, On go back to the opening points, just last week at a session of students, a very wise student discussing ethics of bioscience asked the question, why should I care about ethics when we do not have a single universal standard? That's what Sally was saying. And that opened up a marvelous conversation. But the student was saying, if you can't tell me what is right and wrong, I can't worry about it. Whoa. And in terms of those numbers, you know, 80% of MIT's faculty is male. That's an mm. enormous disparity. And that means that in any given department, women are going to be a very small minority and the culture is going to largely be defined by men. Um, you know, there are fewer than 20 women of color faculty at MIT. Uh, that's, that, I, I find that to be shocking. I have a question for you, Seth. One of the strange things of this whole deal for me is the unpreparedness of great minds at that campus to deal with the question. It's as if they hadn't reflected on it. For example, the, the Koch brothers, two buildings at MIT named after them. Right. How One do, is a child care center. Well, that, that, that would make it three. That's yeah, three. Right. Okay. Why hasn't MIT been debating this issue, obvious issue, all along? How would you reframe it? So I think there are a couple of ways to look at that. One, my most optimistic and hopeful self um, thinks that we are now at a moment sort of akin to where we were several years ago when uh, the rest of the world knew what the entertainment industry was aware of in regards to Harvey Weinstein. Um, And that there has not been – we have not – Um, Institutions of higher education, cultural institutions, hospitals, laboratories have not had these conversations about funding, about who it is okay to accept money from, um, about what type of limits there should be. Uh, And now, all of a sudden, when it is being shown in in the light of day, I think there are going to be a lot of difficult conversations. That's not to say, obviously, that there are no rules. As we found out, one of the more shocking things about the Epstein revelations was that he actually was on a disqualified donor list uh, and was allowed to donate anonymously anyway. Um, but you know, my, my argument with the Kochs would be um, that they support a whole range of policies that I find morally repugnant. Um, they, they are opposed to LGBTQ rights. Uh, they're opposed to women's reproductive rights, workers' rights. What I find to be unacceptable at MIT is that they have also funded the most effective and most wide-ranging and most damaging anti-science campaign in history, and Mm. that's the climate denial campaign. And my view is that for MIT, an institution dedicated to scientific knowledge and learning, to be honoring the people who are fueling the anti-climate movement, I think that is a line that we should not cross. And, and our colleagues have put a letter to that effect in the tech this week on exactly the point that Seth makes. And our colleagues, who are the scholars who are studying climate change, say they are willing to take the Koch's money because they will help cancer. And it'll be a little less money for their bad causes. But what they object to, what they object to is that in the obituary for David Koch, there was no discussion of all this science denying. Okay? Yeah, I've imagined that 
MIT's president might say one to the Cokes one day, uh, keep your money, but leave the coal in the ground, and we'll all be better off. Exactly. Exactly. This matter of reflection and inquiry, um, of which there's not been very much before this moment, uh, Susan, um, rate MIT in general for a kind of moderately introspective curiosity about what they're doing. No. No what? It's not a whole lot of deep introspection of what they're doing. It's not the nature of engineering. It might occur in Seth's department or in mine, in history, in lots of places on the campus, but it's not the nature of engineering. Engineering is about making things, Hmm. and we are dominated by engineering. But it's it's also not entirely absent and and there I'm, I'm about as far as you can find from a company person in the world um, there is one uh, there are a lot of things that I'm proud of at MIT there's one thing in particular that I'm enormously proud of and I think reflects the type of ways that MIT can think positively about its impact and how it defines itself um, and that's in uh, our admissions we don't accept legacy admissions oh, yes. that costs millions and millions of dollars a year in donations I've talked to people in the fundraising department who say that if we would only accept legacy admissions their job would be exponentially easier that means that as an institute we have many many times more the percentage of fam- students coming from the percentage of families in the bottom 20% of earners and many, many fewer students coming from the top 1% than all of our peer institutions, than take Harvard, than Yale, than Stanford. Then. And I, that's something that I think shows how MIT can be forward-thinking and proactive about the role that it wants to play in society. Um, and this presents us with another opportunity to do that. I hope we take that opportunity. Uh, um, but I think we, we can play that type of positive role. MIT also gave up intercollegiate football in the, in the dim past, but that was a certain sacrifice of easy money too, right? Yeah, I'm not sure how much... I'm not much... sure, but I think what Seth discusses, and we discussed it last time we were on when we discussed uh, Saudi Arabia, that we are... We, we only admit students who can do the work at MIT, and we're not selling admission. Right. My concern is that we are not – we are failing these students because we're not giving them a sufficiently critical education about what they're going to do. Susan, I want to push back a little bit on the matter that engineers are not reflective. They don't debate high issues or whatever. I didn't say that. You said that. No, you said that. No. That, that they're not a reflective – argumentative lot. At the same time, science must be a curious inquiry. And yet I know one observer, I've been looking for arguments around genomic medicine, uh, and I said, where's the other side? Where's the dissent? And she said, there is no such thing as a dissenting biologist. They just plain don't happen. Is that possible? You know, a, a, a good round argument about the promise of genetic medicine. We'll come back. Um, we're talking about the aftermath of the Jeffrey Epstein scandal around MIT, and maybe it's just beginning. Coming up, the idea of a university and the idea of MIT. This is Open Source. The turmoil is real at MIT, as we heard the other day outside President Raphael Reif's office. Right 
stayed home, this stuff would keep on happening. Every time people stay home, they're letting it keep on happening. We gotta keep on coming and there's gotta be more of us next time. I've seen over the years a shifting of priorities at MIT. It's a very different place than when I started here three decades ago. With the decline in public support for universities and universities trying to be larger and more prestigious, they rely on people like Epstein and the Sacklers to fund themselves. Their donations are bad in the same way. Taking this money from Epstein is connected to the culture for women at MIT. Um, not only was a convicted sex offender literally brought to campus, but culture for women at MIT is really set from the top down, and this sends a message to all of the women on campus that they are not valued, that they are not safe, and it needs to end now. The MIT administration is rotten to the core. And with this Epstein stuff, I mean, Epstein is a monster. It was clear that they knew he was a monster, and it was clear that for them, fundraising was more important. Older, maybe deeper ideas are embattled in all of this. The famous essay on the idea of the university was written in the mid-19th century by John Henry Newman, the Oxford academic, later a Catholic cardinal. He thought the test of a university was the rounded breadth of its graduates and its students. The goal was perfection of the intellect. On the other hand, there's another solid tradition, especially in America, of professional schools, teachers' colleges, technical institutes. MIT has sometimes seemed to be the best of both worlds or to straddle the categories. For half a century, it was known for the radical philosopher of language, Noam Chomsky, war critic, moralist. MIT teaches music at the highest levels. It had a famous writing program until it was converted into the comparative media studies. Um, question, what is the MID, MIT idea of itself, of a university in a market-driven world? And isn't that still sort of the heart of the question? The well, we say it is to make a better world, to make a better world. But at the same time, we are making it without much contemplation about mm. it. There is a distinction at MIT between making and thinking sometimes. And those of us who are not regarded as the tinkerers are discredited. We're not given the same resources. Contemplation is probably soft, right? That's right. You got it. It's soft. And I'm not saying this is true across the Institute. But in the division and allocation of resources, we are the impoverished ones. And in this world, if you're impoverished, you're not respectable. You can see this in the corridors of the different buildings. We have just built a giant, sterling, sparkling nano center. Why? Go look at where the literature department offices look like. <laughs> the, 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 the bathroom <laughs> on the floor that I work on works if, you know, 50 percent of the time would be a good average. Um, I th you know, I think, Chris, you make a, an excellent point when you talk about market-driven because one of the tensions going on here is that for more than half a century in the post-war period – um, MIT and, and most universities and most big scientific endeavors were funded in large part by the federal government. And the federal government was funding basic research projects that were not 
uh, designed to turn into a business or a product or something mm. that was patentable. That's no longer the case. And so for universities to continue to conduct basic research, they need to find a way to replace that money. Um, you know, we, I think, as a society need to think about where we want to put our priorities. Um, if we want to put our priorities in building warheads uh, and launching foreign wars, or if we want to put our priorities in funding education and science, the answer from our government seems to be pretty clear. Um, uh, I would hope that the answer among our citizens would, would not be the same, but I think that that needs to be part of the conversation, that that money that we are not getting needs to be replaced somewhere. Seth, what's, what's new or to be noted about the corporate sponsorships that serve to fill that gap, probably in the nano center you're mentioning? And doesn't the corporate connection, the informal partnership with industry, go way back to MIT's early days? In the mid 1800s, uh, yeah. So it, we also had a long tradition in this in this country of corporations funding basic research. Um, you know, a lot of the innovations that we rely on today came out of Bell Labs, which was one of the most famous and renowned basic research institutions in the country, and in fact, in the world. That is no longer the case now. And you saw this, and you see this very clearly in the Media Lab. When companies give money, it's because they want a product. It's because there is an end game uh, that they're looking for. And that has a, a very distorting influence on the projects that we propose and, and put together. One of the reasons why Susan's department and, and my department and the humanities at MIT are not in the nanotech building is because we don't bring in these big grants um, and so much of MIT is funded by grants that we, that the departments and labs are responsible for raising on their own. That puts an enormous pressure on appealing to sometimes the bad actors like the Jeffrey Epsteins. I want to ask about, shall we say, fads or fashions that run under all of this culture, too. And I'm thinking specifically of genomic medicine, which has huge promise, but also raises big questions. You've written about it very informatively about uh, one man's sort of worldwide search for a match for a genetic defect in his baby boy. My question to you as a writer, Seth, is how you fend off the air of miracle cures, magical science that's going to come and sweep away the complexity of the human condition. Um, do you know what I mean? There is, a, there is an underlying premise that we might just solve every imaginable problem. Well, For example, on the, Mac, on the tech review cover this, this yeah, week, right, this yeah. month, old age is over. Right. It's done. We've taken care of that. Or we will next week. Um, how do you fight that without looking like a, you know, like a gloomy gusts. Right, right. And and it's, you know, the, the, the book project I'm working on now is about aging. So I found that tech review uh, story very interesting. The amount of times we've declared old age over over the past several decades uh, um, is, is a lot. If you were banking on that when people first started making those promises, you'd now be dead. Um, but uh, I, I think the promise of Miracle Cures, again, gets to how market-driven we are. Because in order to when, – when, when scientists are writing grants um, and when they're proposing projects, proposing something that 
may turn up some interesting results, but might not, we're not really sure, is not going to get a lot of investments. Proposing a grant for this drug is going to reverse the aging process and it's going to be brought to market within five years, that's going to get a lot of attention. And that's happened. We've seen that happen um, uh, with Sertris Pharmaceuticals, um, you know, a, a, a company that uh, some of the research came out of an MIT lab um, and promised to essentially reverse the aging process. It was bought for $710 million, I think, mm-hmm. and then went bust a few years later. Susan Silvey, I'd like you to come back to the Cardinal Newman question. If the soul of the university is inscribed on its students, um, does MIT pass the test? Well, I worry. I think we have some of the brightest, most creative, and enthusiastic students anywhere. I, they are just a joy to teach and excite. But we have to understand that we are embedded in an economy which has abandoned the public sphere, has abandoned higher education, will not support science, the arts, or higher education. And this has a history to it. So our problems with Jeffrey Epstein or with the funding of the labs goes back to the 1970s and the turn in American society to to Reaganomics, to neoliberalism, to withdrawal from economic Mm. largesse that built this nation and built our science. The Manhattan Project, which was about war, or more recently, um, all the the technology that fuels the Internet was part of the space program. This was a public project, and all these billionaires... They are billionaires on the basis of public-funded technology, but they present themselves as great men, as great innovators, as creators under this, neo, this liberal libertarianism, this neoliberal that, you know, the world is just a battle, and who wins? Man on man, you're man contr- manus. You're extending... Siva Vadinathan's point that right. the problem is unfunding, defunding of science and education, both, especially since the 08 crisis, um, as oh, if there's not enough money. I mean, this is not a financial question. We have money in this country for absolutely everything when we know it in our private lives, in our public lives, in our wars. Five trillion for the Iraq war, which everybody knows was a mistake, um, but it's on the credit card forever. So what's got to be dealt with is is our priorities and our a certain realism, as you say, where mm-hmm. where our good life where has it, come from. Where yeah. has it come from? And it came from a collective effort way back. It was the government which was making war, yes, but all the spin-offs made all the technology that has made all these people super wealthy, and they think it's their doing. And so I think that goes right back to the question you said at the very beginning about mastery, about Mm. mastery. It's the mastery of some white men over others. Geniuses, creative. Do you ever hear a woman being referred to as a genius? Tell me a woman who's referred to as a genius. If she is, she's difficult. The last woman genius I've thought about, Mary McGrath maybe, our producer, (laughs) <laughs> no, but it's, it's an interesting point. Uh, how do the white 
guys, powerful intellects at the faculty club, at the faculty meeting yesterday. We don't have a faculty yeah, club. Yeah, I know, anymore. sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, you have a dining room or something. No. No? Well, sort of, well, yeah, sort well, of. Yeah. How do the, those a esteemed, cafeteria really? It's sort of a how do the esteemed white guys, um, decent men too? How do they respond to your article? They fall along a continuum. There are lots of good people, good white men, good black men, good white and black. But there's always a core of something else. And at MIT, I don't think it's evil. I think it's ignorance. The it's. They, it's about not knowing what you don't know. And so I march straight ahead talking to my friend in the office next to me, and he whispers to his friend, and they whisper in the ear of the provost or the president, and that's how things get done. But if you said to them, hey, Joe, you've got a mastery problem, and all of you guys do, this competitive, let's blow something up, you know, zeal, um, a lot of them might say, well, that's why I'm here. They, that's and right. And it took me a lot of struggle to get here. A lot of them would. One of the faculty members spoke at the meeting yesterday so movingly. I think he might have been the first one, a member of electrical engineering yeah. and computer science. And he said yesterday, this is not a young man, he said, I finally get it. I've been listening to this talk for years. I just got it. <laughs> What about the future of humanities? My impression has been that they're on the way out at MIT. They've had well, I certainly hope not. Yeah. Well, uh, but the writing program, in which I once had a small job, yeah. um, is gone. No, no, it's not. It, it's, well, it's, it's been, been combined. Okay. Uh, it's been well. Here's a writer. Brought out. Here's yes. My colleague yeah, yeah. is a writer. Right. Uh, of course, but they're losing altitude. I think. No disrespect, Seth, but I mean. Um, well, I who, think you put your finger. I, w I want to take this. I think you put your finger on exactly the right thing, that the humanities and the social sciences have been systematically devalued at MIT because we don't bring in the money. Right. Because we don't bring in the money, and therefore we're a cost item. We're not a revenue item. And so long as you think about the university as revenues and costs, you've made a serious mistake. The mistake is that... that that you think that there's somehow going to be a balance sheet here when these are creative people, over a thousand creative faculty and lots of creative uh, staff who can come up with infinite ideas for what to do. And therefore, the administration goes out to get the money so that they can. And I, I think we're at a crucial point in, in MIT's history. Um, you know, we're, we're opening a new college of computing, and there has been a lot of talk up to this point about how crucial the involvement of the humanities is, about how much they want um, an ethical and philosophical and moral component to that college. We'll see if that actually happens. One more thing that I find missing, and that is it's the voice of Noam Chomsky, but it's the example of Noam Chomsky. Here is a guy recognized around the world, literally. Um, the most famous member of our faculty exactly. around the world. And he got away with a lifetime of radical dissent. He never hesitated to remind the world that, and me, that when the sh we had the reliable Shah running Iran, he basically outsourced his nuclear program to MIT. Iran being in terrible trouble continuously now for its nuclear, nuclear dreams. Where is somebody to say, hey, I've got tenure. Chomsky's the model. I'm going to talk back. 
I think we could be right now at a moment where you see faculty emboldened to to start to talk about these types of issues. You know, when I wrote about Epstein um, earlier in the week or last week, I guess, there were I had colleagues that tell me I was crazy. And my response was, I have tenure. I'm in such a privileged position. It's my obligation to speak out about this. I think what we saw at the faculty meeting, I think what we're seeing now across the campus is that more and more faculty members are seeing the importance of doing that. We're, we're, you know, MIT has billions of dollars in endowment. We could take this moment and step back from our constant need for bigger and bigger capital campaigns and really take a look at what we want to represent, what we want our soul to be. I hope that we take that opportunity. Last quick word, Susan Silby. I think this is the opportunity for MIT to step forward and give us a new model for the nation. Good luck to all of us. Thank you, Susan Silby. Thank you, Seth Manukin, Sally Hasslinger, and Siva Vadianathan. Thanks also to David Golumbia and Laurie Emerson. Open Source is a proud affiliate of Hub and Spoke, a collective of energetic, idea-driven podcasts. Here's another one to check out. Rumble Strip, where executive producer Erica Heilman talks with artists and criminals, taxidermists and soccer moms, and uncovers startling beauty in everyday life. Her latest is a talk with the author and poet Garrett Kaiser about whether the people abandon poetry or poetry abandoned the people. Listen in at rumblestripvermont.com. And check out all the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. And of course, check out all the open source shows at radioopensource.org. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to the first ever and longest running podcast. And if you like what you hear, think of leaving something in the tip jar for the hardest working team in radio. Our show is produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. The aforementioned Mary McGrath runs our Media Lab. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time on Open Source.